0: Welcome to The Money Pot. I'm Cheryl Chin, Head of Content at Money 2020 Asia. Today, we're addressing a critical issue that deserves our full attention, the challenges faced by women-led startups, with a particular focus on those led by East Asian women. Did you know that globally, women own one in three businesses, yet they receive only 2% of venture funding? Even more concerning, within this 2%, East Asian women let startups confront even steeper hurdles, often receiving only a tiny fraction of that small percentage. Here's the real eye-opener. Research reveals that businesses founded by women actually deliver more than double the return on investment compared to those founded by men. So what lessons can we draw from this? In today's episode, we'll deep dive into Winnie Wong's book titled, You Don't Have to Look the Part, How East Asian Women Thrive as Entrepreneurs. Together, we uncover the systemic barriers that East Asian female founders encounter, the strategies they employ to propel their businesses forward, and the far-reaching impact of their success on the broader ecosystem. Joining me this week to explore this is none other than Money 2020's Europe content lead and financial journalist, Mickey Tespaya, Hi, Mickey.
1: Hey, Cheryl. How are you doing? I'm good. Mickey,
0: since you're the financial journalist, could you give us a quick rundown on how this challenge looks like on your side of the world?
1: Yes, sure. Um, I think as you said at the outset, right, this um, issue that we're discussing today is a critical one. Um, I think for a long time now there has been lots of discussion and conversation around how we push back against the systemic gender imbalances um, that are so pervasive in um, financial services and the startup ecosystem. But I think over the past year or two years, it feels like some of the kind of progress that was made has been eroded, Um, I think, in 2022, for example, global Um, funding for um, VC funding for female led startups dropped in the US, for instance, from the highs of 2021. So this is a big issue, not just for East Asia, but I think around the world. So I'm super excited to have this kind of critical conversation with you and Winnie.
0: Thank you, Mickey, for sharing. So let's dive into the conversation. Winnie, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to write this book?
2: Sure. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm Winnie, and I'm a Canadian-born Chinese. So I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and I was a product of scholarships. So I was very fortunate to have enough scholarship money to study in China and actually learn a lot more about my Asian heritage. And that's what influenced me to decide to move to Singapore in 2015. But when I moved here in Singapore, I the concept of foreign domestic helpers was completely new to me. So in Singapore, we have 250,000 foreign domestic workers from the Philippines, Indonesia, and the surrounding region serving one fifth of the households here in Singapore, they live and work in these households, which is very unique to Asia, and um, and extremely highly high, extremely highly wealthy um, families in the world. Um, but from learning that and understanding that, I felt a sense of guilt and responsibility in my position because I was my parents are originally from Malaysia, so. Honestly, I could have become a foreign domestic helper based off of my own experience or my own background of where I grew up. And that's how I ended up volunteering with an organization that actually helped women learn a lot more about financial literacy and entrepreneurship. And through my research, I started to learn that you know, during COVID, women actually were dropping out of the workforce at a faster rate than men were because they were, you know, they needed a lot more flexibility, or their uh, job situation was, you know, in the services industry, and they didn't actually want to go back to the workforce afterwards because they enjoyed the flexibility of starting to become entrepreneurs and owning their path and their own financial freedom. Because as we know, women still earn only 87 cents to every dollar that a man earns. So um, this is how I started learning a lot more about entrepreneurship and also um, adding on this lens of East Asian females into the picture.
0: Yep, Thank you so much for sharing. Um, So when you were when you were writing this book, you mentioned that your book journey, book writing journey was similar to one of a solo founder. So how has this fundraising journey been for your book financing?
2: Thanks for asking this. It's been an incredible journey becoming an entrepreneur through this book writing program that I've been in and and through publishing. So I took a writing course, you know, a year ago. Um, that helped me get to the manuscript. It was a five-month writing uh, process, and I I started to learn. You know what? I'm actually building a business or becoming an entrepreneur through it because I'm developing a pro- a product, which is a, the book itself. I'm going through quality control, which is an editorial program as well, like getting editors on board, having a ton of people read it, and going through um, market feedback. So I had a team of heavy pen readers who read through every part of my book, every chapter, and gave me real-time market feedback on how the target audience might be responding to the book when it came out. So incorporating that in an agile way was also part of that quality control. I also learned a lot about sales. So how did I actually fund this book was through crowdfunding, through pre-orders and selling launch party tickets. So I had my physical um, party actually just in August, um, where I invited everyone who had pre-ordered my book in Singapore to um, Open Space Ventures, which is a venture capital fund um, here in Singapore. They were helping me, you know, they, they lent me a space. And, um, yeah. And so that's how I ended up crowdfunding it. And I've learned a lot about distribution, about marketing. So I've completely just gone through marketing through word of mouth and through LinkedIn. And fortunately it's been starting to pick up. People have learned about the book and strangers have pre-ordered the book. So one of my favorite orders is actually from, um, the US. So uh, an American had reached out to me and he wanted to support and he wanted to pre-order the book for his niece in the Philippines, who's like 14 years old. Um, And he thought, you know what, this is is such a great idea to just inspire someone who loves to read and learn that you don't have to look the part. You can be the first one striving into any situation. That's, you know, it might not be an entrepreneurship. It could be in your workplace. Um, So I've learned a lot through this journey as an entrepreneur, but it's also really inspired me to get in touch with my readers and learn more about them too.
1: Um, That's such a fascinating um, experience to hear about, certainly. I guess I had a couple of questions for you, Winnie, um, on this topic. Um, I, in the extract of your book that I read, there was a f- bunch of really fascinating stories. So maybe the first question is if you could share, you know, one of the stories that that you really um, resonated with or really liked that, that was featured in, in the book. And then a second question, I guess I want to ask you, maybe a slightly tougher one is, um, where, from your experience of writing the book and you know really kind of digging deep into the various things that are getting in the way of, let's say progress in terms of driving equality, were there some specific lessons in your journey of writing that book you felt like you learned that perhaps could be applied to start making some meaningful change in terms of addressing some of these gender disparities whether it's in East Asia or more globally
2: yeah sure um that's a great question to ask um so firstly about you know taming about you know a story about th- firstly about the book um thanks for sh- asking about that um one of my favorite stories is actually in I think it's chapters chapter five, which is about taming our inner critics. And um, I share the story of Vicky Tsai, who's the founder of Tatcha, and it's um, a major skincare company that's now distributed all over the world, including Sephora. Um, and the gist of the story is that she didn't look the part of a CEO and she was being, and uh, so she had worked in the global beauty care industry for many years, and she had been using her skin for testing um, you know, the products that she was selling. Um, and this was before she had started her own company. This is when she was working in the industry and she started to notice, you know, she was getting dermatitis, which is a lot of sensitivity of your skin because you're just testing all these, um, intense, um, stressors on it. And so she took a break from the beauty industry and she traveled to Japan and she actually started learning a lot more about the ingredients that are in beauty. Because, um, I think a lot of the beauty industry is actually about marketing um, and people will say, you know, those high end uh, products and the low end part products, there's not much difference to that. It's really just a lot of the marketing. But she, she decided, you know what, I'm going to take a break. And she started learning a lot more about the teachings of the way of life in the Eastern world in Japan, and also the types of products that they use, or the types of, you know, food that they eat that nourish them. And she started incorporating this into her products. And that's how she built her company so she sold her engagement ring and she moved into her parents house to bootstrap this company she founded called Tatcha. um and nine years later it was actually co- she was able to get a private equity fund to invest into her business um unfortunately when they had come in and t- t- taken uh ownership of the company some of the equity um they actually suggested that she stepped down as a CEO and they said, you know, why don't you consider just getting a real CEO? And she said, Oh, sure, like, you know, you know better than me as a private equity fund. Like um, uh, there were Caucasian males who were running it. And and they brought someone in from the beauty industry, another Caucasian male to run the company. But um the company ended up getting run into the ground and Um, You know, there was such high employee turnover because it just became all about the profits after that. It lost its mission. And eventually the company, the PE fund actually asked her to return. And so she ended up becoming, joining the club of second time CEOs like Steve Jobs, um, who returned because the people who were hired to run the company properly, who were the real CEOs actually didn't do a great job of it. Um, So eventually, she sold the company to Unilever for $500 million after she had brought it up. And um, what we can learn about this story is really, what does a CEO look like? And I think we see this in a lot of the investment industry and also in the workplace, where we think a leader needs to look like this type of human being, because this is what we've seen in the past. And oftentimes, leaders and organizations are Caucasian males because they've just been in, you know, privileged situations and more privileged than, you know, uh, other minorities. Um, and I'm not saying that's all Caucasian males, but I'm saying that um, the situation that we're born into life really affects our uh, our advantages later on. And so as a woman, you kind of start a bit further away from a man does. And then within the woman's sphere, between a Caucasian woman and an East Asian woman, you're pushed even further away. Um, and so I think this is kind of the situation that we see where, you know, women, East Asian women aren't necessarily looking like the CEO, even though she built her company for nine years and it was growing at double digit growth every single year of those nine years. She also had the industry experience from the global beauty industry. And she was also a graduate of Harvard Business School, but she was always just putting it herself down because she thought that she also didn't look like it. So that's what inspired me to um, actually name my book, title it, You Don't Have to Look the Part, was because of this key story that helped me realize that a lot of how we see ourselves is also not just because of the world, but because of how internally what we expect of what a leader should look like.
1: That story I personally loved as well. And even just hearing you talk right now, I think the point around... Th- th- there's another part in your book that when I was reading it, I, it really spoke to me. And it was the piece that you wrote around confirmation bias, right? And I think often that is the thing that is underlooked so so much and I think it's so pervasive, right? So I think about um, you know Sharon and I in our role speak to um, startups and founders very regularly, right? One of the kind of hallmarks of being a founder who gets funded, right, is um, VCs look at your previous exits, for instance. Now, confirmation bias means you know if that the, the 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 systems if there's if only two women out of a uh, hundred are getting funded. Of course, there's only going to be very few women who've exited and raised businesses just purely because the, the statistics are so against them. And then, you know, second-time founders get more funding than people that have never founded before. So you perpetuate these kind of biases, often not even in a way that you're able to acknowledge it, right? And and the reason why I bring that up is um some months ago, Adam Newman famously of WeWork who had left WeWork and and quite controversial circumstances raised, you know, over 500 million or so, I think, for a new new startup. And I think you think, well, women still struggle to get any type of funding and someone who's left with such kind of, you know, tarnished reputation is able to get it. And I think that piece that you talked about confirmation bias and looking the part of what a CEO looks like, is a big part of it. Even with Steve Jobs, I think he is not what a CEO looked like at the time anyway, you know? So I think that piece around, you don't have to look like the part is really powerful on that.
2: Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Um, It was really cool doing this research. And actually when I boiled it down to, you know, your question about the lessons too, I realized that it's not just about East Asian women. It's about any minority, honestly, because um you kind of have to be the first in a lot of situations there you know i think there's stories about how you know when you're the only woman in the room how tough it is right but you kind of have to also be that first person and build a pathway for others so that other people start having this confirmation bias of yes it's possible for women to be in leadership or other minorities to be in leadership um so it's been really cool being on this journey and actually identifying with it myself, um, and, and reflecting on my own story of, you know, being in the workforce as well, and sometimes being the only woman in the room, or sometimes being the first woman in the room, that kind of thing. So um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for reading the book.
0: Winnie, as um, someone who is in a VC firm right before my current role, so when you guys were talking about like VC funding, this topic is very close to my heart. And in your book, you mentioned the reasons why women tend to have lesser funding compared to male startup founders. Could you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, I would say it boils down to two major parts. One is accessibility and the other is is in societal expectations of women. So the first part in terms of accessibility, um, there's a lot of homophily in, in the venture capital world. Homophily is essentially when um, like the sameness of the same type of profile of people being hired into venture capital. It's very gender-based and it's very school-based. So 40% of venture capitalists come from Harvard, Stanford or Wharton. So if you haven't gone to these three schools, it's very tough to learn about the startup industry or venture capital and get access to these venture capitalists because they're searching through their own networks um, to find startups to to invest in. And um, I went to MBA school myself and uh, we see that only, I think something like 10% of applications are women and they try to get, you know, they try to get to 50/50 parity amongst men and women but honestly it's a very it's very tough for women to go to mba school because it's at a critical time in their life biologically when they're able to have children or in their careers um, and so and also they get stunted in their workforce where we know that men tend to get promoted um based off you know uh, potential versus women are promoted based off off of historical um, performance. So you know that really affects women's ability to get into these types of schools or to even consider being able to go and apply because maybe they're childbearing by then and that's a lot tougher to to transplant your life than it is for men. Um, Another aspect of accessibility, a second part, is really just how do we communicate with women? How do we reach women founders? Um, And we see that, you know, female founders often take a lot more of unpaid work at home or domestic duties than men founders do. And so many of them can't travel to conferences. They can't compete in these, you know, pitch contests in major cities. They might have to just stay at home. And so how do you reach them could be finding more flexible ways, you know, of, you know, interactive calls, or trying to attract them by being more woman-friendly, like you know, having dinners, rather than having dinners out or going out for drinks after work, having lunch, lunch clubs or things like that, where they kind of keep that network going. Uh, because women often have to race home um, because they just take on a lot more domestic duties than men do. Um, and as well as the third aspect of accessibility is through resources. So like I said, a lot of women just can't go to MBA school. (laughs) And, and so they don't have that capital literacy that, um, many men have access to. And we see this even in other countries. Like right now I was, I watched, I watched a YouTube or I watched a vice documentary about Afghanistan and women can no longer go to school in Afghanistan, but men can, for example, under the Taliban rule. And so, um, This is just one example where women just don't get the educational resources to even learn about financial literacy that men do. And I know that's an extreme example, but it's an example of how the world works towards women are expected to, you know, take on more domestic duties. They're not expected to invest in themselves, in education. Um, So I think those are some of the reasons in terms of accessibility. And then other reasons like the societal expectations of women where, you know, women actually we notice they understate and they're a bit more risk averse when they share a number like, you know, it's going to be a $200 million company, not necessarily a $1 billion one, but maybe $200 million. versus men will overstate because they really believe um, that they will become a $1 billion company. Um, and this is just because women f- find this backlash. If they're not accurate, they're going to be picked apart in the media. And um, we do see that although women might understate and they might be a bit more conservative, um, Kevin O'Leary, who is um, a Shark Tank angel investor, um, he's the CEO of O'Shares Investments. And he says that 75% of his investments um, that actually brought ROI for him through Shark Tank were female-led startups. And so uh, he really believes that women are able to even though they're they might be more conservative with their estimates, they're a lot more realistic, and that's what actually drives sustainability and in teams and employees being engaged and saying, "Hey, we believe that our CEO is saying what and can actually predict what's going to happen." Um, so we see this with our inner worlds. We see this through confirmation bias, you know, outside and in, inside, inside internally saying you know what, I'm a woman, maybe I've never seen a female CEO, or only, you know, 14 or 15% of 14,500 CEOs are women, why should I be a CEO? Things like that, um, that kind of cause it, uh, cause this integration of or cause the results of only 2% of venture capital funding, really affecting women or going towards women led startups, versus one third of businesses are owned by women worldwide.
1: I find that piece around the numbers and the returns that you mentioned really fascinating, right? And, you know, as I'm hearing you kind of explain some of the kind of challenges, I find myself asking, um, you know, whether do you think the solution, right, is to change the way in which, say, venture investing and so forth incorporates women and other minorities, or is there actually some degree of change that that industry needs to adopt, say, from from women or other minorities, which actually probably improve the culture of the industry. Um, one example, right, that you mentioned is instead of late drinks, you might do things in the day, right? Like that might have a big cultural significance. It might be because, you know, say one of the founders has a, responsibilities family but then you know people might be religious and so forth but then it actually allows for folks to also actually think about products and services in a different way right like we there are lots of there's lots of evidence that there are things we need to change in our world for example sustainability the point you touched on climate change and a lot of that i think probably has a big cultural element in terms of the returns the things we invest in and so forth so how much of it do you think is about getting more diversity into the space and how much of it is actually changing the way in which that industry operates and making it closer to what, you know, minorities need, what what resonates with women, female investors and so forth. Do Do you understand my point?
2: Yes, I am fully on board. I would say the majority of it is really the process of it, of how do they operate? I know... A quick fix or a band aid, I feel, is you know, let's just get more diverse investors in the room. But at the end of the day, when you look at it, found, founding partners are the ones who get that veto power over, like other partners in 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 the investment room, investment committee, um, because they were the founders, and usually those are white males, and they will go with what they know, which is the confirmation bias. Um, so. There's a lot of things that push back also diverse investors. Like if you're a minority investor, if you're the only African-American in the room, for example, or if you're the only East Asian female in the room, you also are scared of being um, of being accused of the favoritism threat of purposely pushing a startup because they you rep that you identify with them and that you represent them. And then if anything goes wrong with that startup, it, it falls on you because you were the one who favored them because of your similarity. So it's, I don't think it's just about getting more diversity in investors, uh, investment committees, because of those reasons where it's like pointing fingers and it's very, very nerve wracking for being that only one diversity token minority in the room to have that responsibility. But it's about the overall operating process. So there's one VC in uh, worldwide. I think it's based in Toronto, Canada. It's called Loyal VC, and they use they they suggest let's ditch the pitch. Honestly, men overstate and women understate. They know that, and so they actually use a data driven approach where they gate stage the um the the investment that they make in a company. And I thought this was the coolest idea because what we see right now is that. Investors are very scared. They're more scared of missing out on an opportunity than um, than making the wrong choice in a lot of ways. And we've seen this with um, the FTC or, um, or the FTX situation, the crypto um, exchange, um, and where people just they didn't do a due diligence. They went in, but at the same time, it's so hard to do due diligence due diligences on startups because there's not that much history, right? So what they do instead is that they gate stage. And so they say, you know what, we're very interested in investing in you. Um, what And instead they look at the numbers. So they give them initially $10,000 over 10 months. And then based off of that performance with the $10,000, then they'll give 200K for another few months. And then based off of that performance, 1 million, then 3 million. And it becomes a longer process of gate staging that investment. And it, it pushes them to really perform, and they use a more data-driven approach. And I can say from my own experience here as an author, as a you know a self-published author who is going on their own entrepreneurial journey, the majority of the people who pre-ordered my book were people who wanted to invest in me. They know me. Um, they want to support me in particular. It's not necessarily maybe the book that they were as interested in, or th- but it's allowing them to learn more about the topic now. Um, but I feel that's the same with uh, investors as well. In venture capital, they care about the person and investing in that person. But and that's why it depends on their network. If you happen to be really great friends with someone or they've followed you for a very long time, they're more likely to invest in you because they know your character. But women just don't get that kind of exposure because they're not they don't have access to these networks. So I think using this diversity of uh, diversity approach of ditching the pitch of gate staging and using data is actually a lot more helpful. So if I if there's enough time, I'd love to share another story where um, we see the impact of blind auditions. So the New York Philharmonic Orchestra in the 1950s and the 60s, they actually had no women who were part of their orchestra, who were musicians. However, in the 1970s, there was a lawsuit about this. And so they were forced to go through a blind audition process. So instead of auditioning people live in front of them, They actually had to have a curtain and women and men, they would take off their shoes as they walked onto the stage and played behind a curtain. And what they found was that over time, within a decade, in the 1980s, 50% of the musicians in that orchestra became female because they removed all the bias from those auditions. So um, it's really cool being able to see the empirical impact of what this could be like using a more data-driven approach.
0: Thank you Winnie for sharing. So we've touched on very pertinent topics today and discussed only the tip of the iceberg on how East Asian females can continue to persevere. So in order to do this, change has to come from within, where we discussed um, dealing with our inner critics and female founders also need the help of allies. You can read out. Sorry, let me start again. Sorry. We've touched. Sorry. We've touched on very pertinent topics today and discussed only the tip of the iceberg on how East Asian females can continue to persevere. In order to do this, change has to come from within. So this is where we discussed inner critics and also female founders need the help of allies. You can find out more by reading Winnie's book. Winnie, you have do you have something exciting to share?
2: Yes, I do. The paper book for my book, You Don't Have to Look the Part, How East Asian Women Thrive as Entrepreneurs, is going to be coming out on Amazon in October 2023. So you can watch out for it. The ebook is actually already available, and it's already won an International Impact Award and become a number one Amazon bestseller. So I'm really excited for the paperback to come out and to be able to have the entire world be able to pick up the book you know in physical form. But you can also follow me on LinkedIn. So my LinkedIn handle is Winnie Wong 41. And that's W I N N I E W O N G 4 and 1. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much, Winnie. That's it for this episode of The Money Pot. We want to thank Winnie Wong for gracing our show today and also our producer, Rachel Morrissey, for keeping us going despite all the prep for our upcoming Money 2020 US show, which is happening in Vegas on October 22nd and 25th
1: you can be part of the money pot at money 2020 at the money 2020 show please send us pictures to podcast at money 2020.com and don't forget to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts thank you again for listening